morning, church. I invite you to pull out your Bibles as we will be reading from Psalm 102. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 502. Again, we are in Psalm 102. Let's stand together as we read starting in Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to be able to hear your word read. And now, as the word is preached, we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to give us the gift of illumination, to see what we cannot see with our own eyes, but to open up the eyes of our hearts, to see your truth, to see your goodness and your beauty. Help us, Lord, for your glory, for our good, all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, friends, in the last few weeks, we have started a sermon series on the attributes of God that we are calling God is. Where each week we're going to be preaching on one particular attribute of God. And so far we've already covered two. We've covered his goodness and his patience. Those are two really good examples of what theologians call God's communicable attributes. These are, excuse me, attributes that the creator communicates to us or shares with us. So we, in other words, can and should emulate God's goodness and his patience. Those are communicable attributes. Now, later in this series, we're going to look at two more. We're going to cover his nearness and his love. But what we're going to do this morning and for the next three weeks is to look at what are known as four incommunicable attributes of God. Attributes that are unique to him as creator Ones that he does not communicate, he does not share with us. Now, in theology, there are four attributes that are classically defined as incommunicable. You have his immutability, his eternality, his independence, and his omnipresence. Now, if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry. Our plan is to teach you what those terms mean. But why? For what purpose? Like why, why would we spend time, why would we spend four weeks covering God's incommunicable attributes? I mean, if they're unique to him, then they don't seem all that relevant to us. Well, let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you to describe God for yourself, what would you say? What would first come to your mind? I think you'd probably think of attributes like his love and his goodness and his patience And those are good, those are true attributes, and that's where you naturally go. But notice how we are instinctively gravitating towards 
the incommunicable attributes, which is why I think we tend to forget just how wholly different God is compared to us. We tend to see our difference with God merely in quantitative terms. As creatures made in his image, we just see ourselves as microscopic versions of him. He's the sun, we're the candle. He's the ocean, we're the raindrop. He's the glacier, we're the snowflake. We tend to think about God like we would imagine ants would think about us. Like to an ant, you have to, you know, just imagine that human beings walking among ants, we, we seem like gods to them, right? We are astronomically bigger than any ant. We can just crush them at our whim. We're gods to them. But then again, we're not. Yes, we are much bigger than ants, but we're still made of the same stuff, atoms and molecules. And yes, we can crush ants, but we can't create them. We can't form them out of nothing. And so a better image is to compare the difference between God and us with comparing the difference between Shakespeare and any of his characters and his works. Shakespeare and Macbeth differ not in degree, but in kind, in nature. One solely created the other. One utterly depends on the other. See, Macbeth needs Shakespeare in order to exist. Shakespeare doesn't need Macbeth in that same way. Shakespeare alone is author. Everyone else is a character. And likewise, God alone is creator. And everyone else is a creature. And friends, we must not neglect or to forget this crucial distinction or else we're going to have too low a view of God. I love uh, what Martin Luther once said to a theological opponent in a debate with him. He said, your thoughts of God are far too human. You have human thoughts of God. And I think that is such an indictment against us, really. Our thoughts of God, if we're honest, are far too human. We just view him as a bigger, better, stronger, wiser, kinder version of ourselves. But friends, God is so much more. He is something else. He is in a class of his own. And that is why we constantly need to be reminded of these things. And we need to meditate on what we're calling the incommunicable attributes of God. And this morning, we're going to start off with his immutability his unchanging nature. Now, this is such an important attribute for us to grasp, especially when you consider how fast this world is changing all around us. And as the world changes, we're changing with it. Our weight changes. Our health changes. Our appearance changes. People change their attitude. People change their minds. People change sides. People change loyalties. And that's why you get hurt. That's why you get disappointed by those whom you thought you could trust. It's because people change. And that's why we're all longing for something different. As we all live in this world of change, all of us are longing for stability. 
We long for something or someone that is reliable, someone that is sure and steady, who won't disappoint, who won't let us down, who won't fail us. It's like we're all floating in a sea of change and we're all just grasping for an immovable, unshakable rock, a rock upon which we can anchor our lives in the face of all the constant waves of change that keep crashing on us. And that rock, of course, if we look to the scriptures, we'll see, is the immutable God of creation. And this is where the unchanging nature of God, my friends, is so relevant to our lives. And so let's get into this. Let's get into this particular incommunicable attribute. And what I want to do, if you want to follow along, look inside your bulletin, you'll see an outline. I want to start off by defining what God's immutability means. And second, I'll demonstrate where this is taught in Scripture. And third, I want to draw out implications. Implications of God's immutability for our everyday lives. All right, so let's begin by defining some terms. The word immutability comes from the Latin word mutare, which means to change. So something is considered mutable, it mutates if it changes, either in form or in nature. But then we would call it immutable if it does not mutate, if it does not change in form or nature. And so in theology, when we speak of God's immutability, we are referring specifically to the unchangeableness of his nature. We mean his essential being never changes. It is consistent. It's reliable. And we'd say the same thing about God's character. Since his nature never changes, neither do any of the character traits of God that we're always praising and singing songs about. His character is immutable. And likewise, immutability also means that his purposes never change. His foreordained plan for your life will not change. It will come to pass as he wills. And immutability also means not only do his plans never change, but his promises never change. When the Lord promises you something, you can be sure he's going to keep it. He's going to fulfill it in his good timing. So his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises, these are four immutable, immutable aspects of our unchanging God. This is why we often praise him in our songs, and we see because it's in the scriptures, we praise him as our rock. That's a common metaphor we see in scripture conveying God's steadiness, his steadfastness. It suggests that God is stable while the world is not. God is reliable while people are not. God is constant while life is not. God is a rock who never changes. Now, just because God is a rock, that doesn't mean, though, that he's impersonal or inactive. We, we, we might praise him as a rock, but we have to also at the same time be very careful to avoid a static view of God that just strips him of all personality or of all ability to personally relate to us. Because I wouldn't want any of us leaving this place with a view of God that is so lifeless as, as, as you would imagine a rock would be. Because, I mean, really, how can you have you know, a personal relationship with a rock, 
right? I mean, some of you guys might remember pet rocks. You know, it just, it just never did it for me. I mean, it's just, it's, it literally still is a rock. It's, it's, you can't relate to a rock. And so using this metaphor, we have to be careful. And so I want to give you a balanced definition of what we mean when we describe God as a rock or we call him immutable. So if you want to look in your, in your handout, there is a definition there. And this is the working definition we're going to have. To be immutable means that God is unchanging in his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises. And yet, God is neither indifferent nor impersonal, for he responds and relates to mutable beings like us with reliable consistency. That's the definition that we're going to be working with this morning. All right, so that's the definition of immutability. Now let's start by demonstrating God's immutability from the scriptures. So we're going to start with that first aspect about God never changing in his nature. Again, what this means is that God in his essence, in his being, never changes for better or worse, but remains exactly the same. Now, in coming to this conclusion, are we just basing this merely on logic? Or just on philosophy? I mean, is there scriptural support for this doctrine? Is immutability taught in scripture? Well, I believe so. I think this morning's text teaches immutability. Look back at this morning's text. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28. Now, it's important to note that Psalm 102 is considered a lament psalm. That means it was written to express the psalmist's present grief. But at the same time, in many of the Lament Psalms, it starts off with grief, but it ends expressing enduring confidence in the Lord. So listen to just the subscript. Uh, this is right before verse 1. If you look, at, look in your Bible, the subscript says this. This psalm is a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and he pours out his complaint before the Lord. And so we read in verse 3, a lament about the brevity of life, especially when our days or when our fleeting days are often spent in pain and anguish. Look at verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. And that whole section of lament concludes in verse 11 like this. My days are like an evening shadow. I, I wither away like grass. But then notice, notice how the tenor of the psalm changes in verse 12, now to one of hope and confidence, and it's all because it's rooted in the eternal, unchanging nature of God. Look at verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And this, this section here of hope and confidence concludes in verse 24 with these words. Oh, my God. I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. And then the psalm concludes with the passage that we just read earlier, verses 25 to 28, conclude with an exaltation of God's immutability, especially in contrast to mutable creation, specifically to the heavens and to the earth. Listen again to verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And notice what the psalmist is doing. He, he is purposely choosing two objects that are universally recognized to be constant and unchanging. I don't think you 
questioned at all this morning that the sun would be there. And I'm sure you're all assuming that the moon is going to rise this evening. We just assume instinctively that the heavens and the earth and the objects in the sky, that they will always just be around. But in the grand scheme of things, that's simply not the case. Read on in verses 26 to 27. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you, O Lord, are the same, and your years have no end. In other words, everything in creation admits of change, but our creator God is the one thing that never changes. Mutability is a key characteristic of what it means to be a creature, while immutability belongs to the creator and to him alone. That's his attribute. Now, because his very nature never changes, second, God also never changes in his character. You see, a traumatic accident or a stroke, those things can completely alter a person's character. A mild-mannered, kind-hearted man can wake up from, from a stroke, from, from, from being in a coma, this ill-tempered and foul-mouthed. Those things happen. It happens to people, but not to God. Nothing can alter God's character. Nothing can alter his love, his compassion, his patience, his justice, his wrath. All of those characteristics stay the same. His character is constant. I think there's a temptation that's rooted in ancient heresy to often view the God of the Old Testament as having gone through some kind of change, some kind of evolution by the time you arrive in the New Testament. Because by the time you get to the New Testament, God seems to be less angry he seems to be less wrathful and a lot more merciful and loving. It seems like his character has changed. It seems like he softened up a bit. But I think that perception fails to take into account how the Bible actually depicts the Lord. A careful study of Scripture is going to conclude that God's character is actually consistently depicted in the same way in both Testaments. Now granted, yes, in the Old Testament you have accounts of 10 plagues, you have accounts of fire coming down from heaven, and yes, that's more visceral, that's, just let's admit, that's, 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 that's pretty scary to think about, and so we, often, and we, and we don't see punishments like that happening in the New Testament, and so it's very easy, and you can understand why some people are just going to conclude that, man, God has softened up a bit by the time you get to the New Testament. But friends, that's only how you can conclude. You can only conclude that if you overlook all of the New Testament warnings of eternal punishment in a hellish future existence. If you come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible has softened up by the time you get to the New Testament, it's probably because you don't actually believe what the Bible teaches about hell. You don't take it seriously. And that's why we think the God of the New Testament has softened up. I mean, we can picture what fire coming down from heaven looks like. We just can't really picture eternal fire in hell. And so we, we just have a hard time recognizing that this is the same 
God. The fact is that both the Old Testament and New Testament consistently portray the Lord as, quoting out of Exodus 34, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? So since the day the Lord revealed himself that way to Moses, he has not changed. He is still the same God today. He is just as gracious. He is just as slow to anger, just as abounding in steadfast love, just as forgiving of sin. He is just as loving. And he's just as just. And he will by no means clear the guilty, either back then or today. He won't let sins go unpunished. God's character has never and will never change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, granted, when it comes to human beings, the inability to improve, the inability to mature would be considered a character flaw. Right? It would be considered a moral weakness. But it's completely different when it comes to God. Because he has no need to improve. He's perfect. The inability to mature is not a limitation for God because he can't be any more loving or any more patient or any more just. He is perfect in all of his character. So that's, that's why God doesn't need to change. He does not change in character. All right, well, what about God's purposes? Where does Scripture teach that third, God never changes in his purposes? Well, let me read a couple of verses that affirm this. Uh, listen here to Psalm 33. This is verses 10 to 11. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Or listen to Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11. It says this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Friends, there is no other God like our God. What he has purposed, he says he will do. His counsel shall stand. Now, we, on the other hand, we change plans all the time. Like, because of the fact that we can't foresee weather patterns, we end up canceling that trip to the beach that we had planned for weeks. Or because we don't have the power to make traffic jams magically disappear, we end up changing plans for, uh, for dinner that evening because we just can't make it in time for the reservation. We experience the frustration of having to change our plans and our purposes all the time. But because God knows all and he can do all, and because 
These are never-changing attributes of his never-changing nature. That means no plan of God's can ever be thwarted or are ever in need of any adjustment. His purposes never change. Okay, you say, but what about those passages in Scripture that speak of God changing his plans? Like, you know, for example, when he threatens to destroy a city, but he ends up not doing it. I mean, just think, to think of the book of Jonah. That's a good example. God sends the prophet to the city of Nineveh to preach that in 40 days, this ungodly city is going to be overthrown. But in response to Jonah's preaching, the inhabitants of the city repent. And so God relents. But, and so that means he doesn't go through with what he said he was going to do. Now, I know it sure does seem in that instance as if God did change his plans because he was very clear what he was going to do. And he ends up not doing it. But friends, I would argue that that's not really an example of God changing his plans. I think that's just another example of God being completely consistent, doing what he always does in response to sinners who heed his warnings and who turn away from their sins. This is exactly what God always does whenever we repent of our sins. The Bible says that if we change, if we repent, God will always relent. He will always forgive sinners who confess their sins and who repent from them, who turn away from them. I know some might still insist on calling that a literal change in God's mind, but the Bible just describes that as a reliable response by a gracious, all-knowing God who is reliably consistent in all of his eternal purposes. You see, a literal change of plans, a literal change of God's mind would be if he were to suddenly refuse to relent even after a sinner genuinely repents. But friends, God never does that. God will never do that. God is reliably consistent. So if God ever does withdraw his threat of punishment, if he ever does relent, it's not because he changed in either his mind or his purposes or his plans. Rather, it's because in that moment, a sinner must have changed. A sinner must have repented. Hallelujah. We should be praising that. The theologian A.H. Strong puts it well. He, he, writes the, he writes this, quote, When a man bicycling against the wind turns about and goes with the wind instead of bicycling against it, the wind suddenly seems to change, although it was blowing just as it always was before. So friends, God is reliably consistent. And that means the wind of his mercy, the wind of his kindness that leads to repentance, it always blows away from sin and destruction and towards God. And so we're the ones who need to stop writing against it, writing into it. We need to stop resisting his kindness and his mercy. Instead, let it turn you. Let it turn you and propel you towards God. We're the ones that need to change. God doesn't need to change. Now, fourthly, God never changes in his promises. 
That means God remains faithful to all of his covenants. When he gives you his word, this means you can take it to the bank. It's a guarantee. Listen to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. I mean, how, how much more direct can he be? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, the preceding context of Malachi 3 emphasizes God's coming judgment on those in Israel who refuse to follow his ways, who keep writing against his kindness into his wind. But God is merciful, and he will not consume the children of Jacob. He will not utterly consume the Israelites. Why? Because God does not change in his promises to his people. So just as we can count on the certainty of his judgment against the wicked, we can also count on the certainty of his faithfulness to his people. God made a promise to their ancestors, and so in spite of their present-day unfaithfulness, the people of Israel, God's people, can be sure that God will ultimately be faithful, and he will not bring about an utter destruction of his people. People make promises all the time. And people break promises all the time. Friends, God alone is the rock. And God alone makes rock-solid promises that cannot be broken. His promises never change. Okay, so from Scripture we see it clearly taught that God never changes in his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises. Now let's draw out some implications of this. There are four in particular that I want to draw your attention to. First, God's immutability is a strong encouragement for you to pray. I mean, just think about it. Could you imagine what it would be like to pray to a mutable God? To pray to a God who only has loose plans for your life, plans that could change at a drop of a hat? Listen to the words of the Puritan, Stephen Charnock. He says this, What comfort could it be to pray to a God that, like the chameleon, changed colors every day, every moment? What encouragement could there be to lift up our eyes to the one that were of one mind this day and of another mind tomorrow? That would be so difficult. That would be so discouraging. Why would you want to pray if you have no idea if God's going to be, be, be kind today or if he's going to be wrathful tomorrow and, and, and it's, you just don't know, is he going to change his plans on me? But friends, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about God changing his plans. His purposes are eternal and unchanging. Now, if they were immutable, then yeah, we would have no idea how to pray according to his will. Because what if his will changes all the time? Prayer, as prescribed in Scripture, would be near impossible if not for his immutability. I know some are going to argue, though, that immutability would seem to make prayer meaningless, that it would shatter any motivation for us to want to pray. I mean, if nothing can change God's mind, then why even bother praying to him? What's the point? Well, what does Scripture say about that? Does prayer change the mind of God? The Bible says no. But does prayer change things? The Bible says yes. 
See, friends, prayer is not meant to inform God with new information that he didn't previously know. Jesus made that very clear for us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he says, The Father knows what you need even before you ask him. But after saying that, does Jesus then go on to conclude that, well, then there's no need to pray because he already knows what you need. No, he goes on to teach his disciples how to pray. He gives us the Lord's prayer. So prayer may not change the mind of an all-knowing God, but prayer certainly does change things. And Jesus prescribes us to pray, even knowing that God knows exactly what we need. Second, God's immutability is a strong comfort to his children. I mean, just look back at, at the passage that we read this morning, Psalm 102. After magnifying God's immutability in relation to the mutability of everything else in creation, how does the psalmist now conclude this psalm? Look at the, verse, the last verse. Look in verse 28. He draws out the pastoral implication, the take-home lesson here. God, you are immutable. We worship and exalt you for that. And the last verse says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Because, Lord, you're immutable, because you never change, not only are we secure, but our children are secure, and our children's children are secure. Your immutability is a strong comfort and a source of security. Now, friends, I, I realize that many of you need to hear that because you are in a difficult season of life right now. Maybe right now you're in a season of life where your prayers aren't really being answered. And God seems rather distant to you while difficulties seem very near, very, very close. It feels like God is putting you through quite a trial right now. But here's the comfort. Because God never changes in his goodness towards his children, you can be sure that this trial that you're going through right now is not meant to tempt you, it's not meant to hurt you, but it is there to help you. It is there to refine your faith. This trial, as incomprehensible as it, is, it might be to you right now, believe that this trial is exactly what you need right now for your spiritual growth. For that reason, you can therefore count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Everything he gives you, even that which is hard and painful, you can trust is a perfect gift from above, a perfect gift for your good. It's God's immutability that guarantees that. Third, third implication. God's immutability is a strong warning to the unrepentant, to those who refuse to turn away from their sin. While we just said how his immutable character is good news for his children, it's bad news for those who are resolved to live in their sin. Remember what we read earlier about the Lord out of Exodus 34? How he will by no means clear the guilty? Remember, that is part of his unchanging character. And the guilty in this context 
are those who have transgressed God's holy law, which is not just an arbitrary code of ethics. No, the law of God reflects the immutable holy character of God. And so to trample on the law is to trample on the holiness and honor of God himself. That's why sin is such a big deal. Stephen Charnock says, quote, being the same God, he is the same enemy to the wicked as the same friend to the righteous. Without repentance, the sinner must irrevocably perish or God must change his nature. There must be a change in man. There can be none in God. So what he's saying here is that the unrepentant sinner is headed towards certain judgment unless one of two things happens. Either the sinner repents or God changes his holy character. It's like trying to play the game of chicken. You know that dangerous game where two people drive their cars headfirst towards each other, just daring each other to swerve, seeing who's going to be the first one to swerve out of the way? In the same way, those who remain unrepentant of their sin are playing a dangerous game of chicken with God, driving right at him, hoping that the last second, God's going to swerve. Thinking to ourselves, maybe, maybe God will change. Maybe, maybe he'll change his character and he'll clear the guilty just this one time, just for me. Maybe he'll change. Maybe he'll swerve. But that's just wishful thinking. God never swerves. If your plan is to stand before an immutable God on your own, remember, friends, that his holy character is immutable. He will never condone the slightest of sins. And remember that his omniscience is immutable. He will never forget a single trespass. And his omnipotence is immutable. He will never tire or, 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 or lose the power to inflict just justice and judgment. What a dreadful thing to stand before a holy, omniscient, omnipotent, immutable judge on nothing but your own merit, your own works. Like I said, immutability is a strong warning to those who are unrepentant, who feel like they don't need Jesus. They can do it on their own. But that leads, of course, to our fourth and last implication. God's immutability is a strong assurance to those who do repent and who do trust in Jesus. Remember, friends, our immutable God who does not clear the guilty is also our immutable God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And it's for that reason that the Father sent the Son, who, without any change to his divine nature, added to himself a human nature. And he humbled himself as a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross in the place of guilty sinners like us. When Jesus set his face like a flint towards the cross, it was as if in that game of chicken, Jesus took our place in the car, took our place behind the wheel, and he drove head first towards the immutable justice of God, knowing full well that his father would not swerve 
but would rather unleash his wrath against our guilt upon his son. On the cross, Jesus bore our guilt and God's punishment upon himself because he knows that God does not clear the guilty. So Jesus became guilty for us. But on the third day, on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, announcing to the world that Jesus' sacrifice for us was accepted. Announcing that because of the guilt of sin is now cleared in Christ, now the wind of God's kindness blows immutably towards those who turn to Jesus for salvation, who, who stop going towards the wind, stop riding into the wind, but who turn from their sin and begin to trust in Jesus. You can trust that the wind of God's mercy will be on your back. It will be blowing and propelling you forward towards the Lord. Immutability is a fearful doctrine to those who want to stand on their own before God, but it is a great assurance for those who repent and trust in Jesus. Because of Christ, God will never change in his love towards those who believe. His face will continually shine forever with favor on you, with the same strength and the same brightness, the same yesterday, today, and forever. All because God never changes. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come to you now in prayer, not to bring any information that you didn't already know, not to try to change your mind or to change your will. We come to you in prayer to praise you, to exalt you for who you are, the unchanging God who will never change in his kindness and his love towards us because your justice and your wrath were cleared and fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. In your name we pray.